or to your handout, uh, to Acts chapter 25, and we will pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. The challenge in teaching this particular passage of Scripture is that it's just a flat-out narrative. It's a, just a telling history. And all of chapter 26 is a recitation, well, almost all of chapter 26, is a recitation or a repeat of Paul's testimony, which we've already studied twice. If you don't know it by now, you haven't been listening. So when we come to a passage like this, I'm sitting here struggling going, well, I have filled in in enormous rabbit trails the last few sessions we've had together on some of the, the various characters, and we'll do a little bit of that today. But my plan, as you can tell by the handout, was only to do 20, chapter 25, but when I got done with my preparation, I realized, well, that was 10 minutes, uh, maybe a little more than that, but um, we're going to do what I can maybe to try to get through the end of 26 today, which means you'll actually have to use your Bible. Ooh, something radical. Um, but we'll, you know, we'll play it by ear here because there's a dramatic change at the end of chapter 26 because the rest of Acts is the journey to Rome, which is uh, very dramatic and very different with a completely different uh, story storyline. When we ended in our last session, we ended at the end of chapter 24 with this verse. We had Paul in front of Felix, the procurator, and also Felix's um, his wife, Drusilla, and nothing happened. Basically, Felix just punted the decision on what to do with Paul and so left him under guard in Caesarea in the palace prison, if you want to call it a prison. And it says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years. I, I tried to, you know, dig into that a little bit. Just, I mean, that, that is such a long time that is just passed over almost blithely in scripture and you wonder what was Paul doing well maybe he wrote letters that we don't have anymore maybe he had visitors from Jerusalem maybe he had visitors from Caesarea like Philip and the other members of the Caesarean community maybe had visitors from Galilee who would all come in and sit at his feet and he mentored and trained them because he was allowed to have visitors. And you wonder sometimes when God gives a pause in what your plans might have been and you have to wait. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary on this particular book of the Bible. He talks about a two-year period when he left his church <clears throat> in California and went to work at Dallas Seminary as the chancellor and moving his entire ministry from LA to Dallas. And it took two years. It took two years to sell their home in California. It took two years to move the entire ministry. And for two years, he and his wife Cynthia had to live in different cities to take care of the various things that were going on during this transition and how difficult that was and how the devil kept telling him he had made a mistake because of this two year period. He writes here, during those two years I was reminded of a period of life, period in the life of Hudson Taylor that we tend to forget. Hudson Taylor had been in the mission field for six years and had accomplished much as a pioneer missionary in inland China, but he became ill. And he had to return home 
for five years. This time was described like this. Invalidated or invalided, I'm not sure which word he added here. Um, home at 29 years old, after six years of intensive service in China, Hudson Taylor settled with his little family in the East End of London. Outside interests lessened, friends began to forget, and five long hidden years were spent in the dreary streets of a poor part of London where the Taylors were shut up to prayer and patience. For the record of those years, it has been written, quote, yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth had been, in, uh, had been matured for the leadership that was to be? And I can just say there are times in our lives where you kind of sit back and you wonder, what does God have for me? I don't have a direct answer right now. I'm in this period of no answer. And yet God is at work. It's our job to wait for it, to listen for it. And Paul did this for two years. But there's no record of what he did. We just are left with a side note. Yes? One of the things that's helped me over the years, uh, I've had many Whenever things would be uh, needing help, I always said, I want the Lord's leading. I wanted it His time schedule. So it's always wait, wait. We love yes to a prayer. We don't like no, but we like the answer. But to wait, everything's exciting. Yeah, we do not like come back tomorrow. We just don't like to do it. And you know, it's just one of these moments in the life of Paul that I wish there was more to know, but I think it's a lesson for all of us. That, I mean, for the previous, what, 10 years, this has been a, uh, a train, a fast moving train of this and that, and then suddenly, He's not on the road anymore. Anyway. But the little uh, historical detail, it says that Felix, the procurator, was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Little background there, just to remind you. Felix um, was not a nice man. He ruled with an iron fist. And the last straw for Rome in his position as the procurator was a riot that broke out in Caesarea. So literally down the street from where, Fes for where Felix lived. <clears throat> you had the Jews and the Syrians had a conflict. They actually went to battle in the streets. Now imagine if you're the mayor of your town and two factions in the town decided to have it out on Central Avenue. We can imagine that. It's not beyond the pale of possibility in our society. And the uh, governor of the uh, area is not too happy with the, uh, the blow up in the, in the city. And then the, you know, the Rome is really not happy. What made it worse is that Felix tried to fix it by going down into the marketplace and telling the Jews who won the battle to leave. And they didn't, so he killed them all. Didn't exactly endear him to the Jewish people. And they complained to Rome. So Rome said, we're done with this guy. He obviously has lost control of the region. You're fired. And they bring in Festus. Porcius Festus, we know very little about him. Josephus writes about Festus this way. Festus succeeded Felix as a procurator and made it his business to, to correct those that made disturbances in the country. So he 
caught the greatest part of the robbers and destroyed a great many of them. We're not exactly sure what he's referring to other than that there were a lot of ruffians in the highways and byways and making a mess. Uh, in the It was a lawless time in other words. Josephus describes somewhat in detail the nature of the disorders and the measures employed, but his task proved impossible. The situation grew worse. A condition would may have contributed to Festus's early death. He lasted two years, and then he died. But in the meantime, we have him right here in Acts 26. Josephus in history uh, describes Festus as a very fair and reasonable man. His job is basically as a peacemaker. His job is to come in and, you know, settle the problems in the region because it's becoming obvious that the Jews in the region are not very cooperative. It says in verse 20, verse 1 of chapter 25, now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So think of it this way. He travels from Rome, where he had been. He arrives in Caesarea. He unpacks his suitcase, has lunch, talks to a couple of the people and goes, all right, I need to go to where the Jews are in charge. First day on the job, he goes to Jerusalem. Now, I, I, I'm going to be, let's just say, projecting some things here that are not necessarily historically accurate, but you can make some assumptions. Felix was described as someone who was familiar with the way. He knew about the Christians in the region. If it wasn't just his conversations with Paul, he had some familiarity. He was also married to a Jew. He was married to Herod Agrippa II's sister, Drusilla. So he understood some of the ins and outs of the politics and the religion of the region. Festus has no clue. And I highly doubt that there was an effective exit interview between Felix and Festus. Because from what we can tell, Felix was recalled to Rome where he was fired. Maybe there was some sort of meeting. And he said, well, here's, you know, here's my, 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 my black book of bad people. I don't know. But he shows up three days later. He arrives in Jerusalem. And it took two days to get there. So it's almost as if one of the first things he realized, he needs to get control of this. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. What? Of all the things to talk to the new procurator about? They're talking about this guy that's been in prison for two years? They still had... Paul stuck in their teeth. They were so obsessed with getting rid of him that they were still trying to manipulate the Roman government to let him go so they could kill him. Well, they're hungry. <laughs> they're hungry, no kidding. And urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they're planning on an ambush to kill him along the way. Those 40 guys who made their vow, they've been waiting to eat for two years. <laughs> We're not gonna eat until we kill him. These are, they're emaciated, little guys on the going, ah, no. But seriously, those 40 guys are probably still around. They're willing to put their life on the line to kill Paul. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, let the men of authority among you, the Sanhedrin, chief priests, etc., go down there with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let, the, let him bring charges against him. 
And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, which is an interesting number. I'm not quite sure, you know, because six days is a week before the Sabbath. So it's not even seven or 14, it's eight or 10. Okay, whatever. They go to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. These, they don't even bother to recite them again because we know what they are. Sedition, um, let's see, sedition, I don't remember, there were three S's. I should have written it down. <laughs> anyway, go back to your notes, you'll find it where you wrote it down. Uh, pretty much three very big charges, but none of them are against Roman law. Sedition might be, but it wasn't sedition against Rome. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar have I committed any ex uh, offense. But Festus, w wishing to do the Jews a favor, doesn't that sound like an echo, said to Paul, well, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and be tried on the charges, on the charges before me? And Paul said, I'm standing right here. I'm in front of you right now before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I am a Roman citizen. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there's nothing that are charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Festus wasn't planning on that response if you think about it that he figured oh well this is going to be easier just give them over to the Jews let the Jews take care of their deal it's a religious issue and Festus when he conferred with his council said okay to Caesar you have appealed to Caesar you shall go well, Roman citizenship came in handy it did so who is Caesar right now Right? Not Nero yet. It is Nero. It is Nero. Nero's been been emperor for five years already. Yeah. I appealed to Mr. Hackenslash. <laughs> but historically, Nero had not lost his mind yet. He was actually considered fairly reasonable leader at this time. You know, pompous and all that issue, but he didn't start doing all the burning and destroying and all that for another five years. So he had not had a history of being horribly terrible, but you know what Caesar was benevolent, none of them. So this idea of him appealing to Caesar created a problem for Festus. You might go, what, what's the problem? Well, if a man appealed to Caesar and was sent to Rome, there had to be a written account of the case and a written list of charges against him that Caesar would then rule. But Festus had nothing to write about. He couldn't create a case and also think of it another way. This is the first case brought before Festus. <laughs> and it's already under appeal to his boss. And his predecessor had been, you know, fired unceremoniously. It's like, oh man, I'm in a real pickle here because I need to do a favor to the Jews to placate them but I have a Roman citizen and I need to follow the Roman law and he's appealed to Caesar so I have to send him but what am I supposed to put together? Which is why in the next verses 
he was probably glad that Herod Agrippa II and Bernice were coming to town. Now, I have given you a nice chart on page three of the line and lineage of Herod. I tried to write it on the board the last time we were here, and I know you all wrote it down perfectly and wrote down everything. Well, now you have it in print in a much easier and better way to follow. But I want to just spend a moment with this handout to give you a picture of who is coming to town. Because who's coming to town is Herod Agrippa II. You find that person on the fourth circle at the bottom of the page. And the circles are intended to indicate the Herods that we know the most about in the New Testament. So obviously Herod the Great, that's the one at the very beginning of the New Testament. He dies around 4 BC after killing three of his sons. Um, and had willed that his three sons, Philip I, Archelaus, and Antipas, would take over the region. Antipas is the one we see in most of the Gospels when it's referred to Herod. There are some exceptions, but most of the time when they're referring to Herod, in the Gospels it's referring to Herod Antipas. This is the fellow who killed John the Baptist. Now, it doesn't show you on this chart because otherwise we'd have all sorts of lovely arrows and it would be confusing, so you get to draw your own arrows. If you take Herod Antipas and start your arrow and start moving it to the left and find Herodias, you see the Herodias in that third tier? You find it? That's his wife. He married his niece. Now his niece, Herodias, had been married to his brother, Philip II. So you can draw that arrow straight up to, Her to Philip II. Or, sorry, Philip the first. Philip the first. All right, so you have the niece marrying her uncle, getting rid of that uncle, and marrying the other uncle, Uncle Antipas. They had a child. The child was named Salome. And she was the one who danced before the king and asked as the, uh, the favor, because he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Her mom whispered in his ear, ask for the head of John the Baptist. You see, now you make this connection. It's a lovely family. They're just, you know, wonderful, wonderful people. Just the kind of people you would invite over to your community group. Or if they show up, maybe we can read them scripture. Um, Herodias's brother is Herod Agrippa I. You see that right there? Herod Agrippa I was the procurator after Pilate. So when Pilate ended his rule, Herod Agrippa I got, was in charge, and one of the things he did was to kill the Apostle James. And we know that in Acts chapter 12. So this group of Herods were not friends of the church. They saw the church as a threat and they would do whatever they could to suppress it. They were not necessarily Jewish, although they were familiar with Judaism, 
it's it's so difficult. You can't say they weren't Jewish, but they were. You know, Herod the Great was called the King of the Jews by Rome. He was Idumean. He came from Edom, so there's connectivity, but not a pure line of Judaism. The mother of Herod Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist, was a Samaritan. Even making it even more complicated. But then you have Herod Agrippa I had three children. And those are the ones at the bottom of your chart. Herod Agrippa II, Bernice, and Drusilla. Drusilla is the one who married Felix. Right? You get getting the picture now? So when Agrippa II and Bernice arrive, it's a brother and a sister. It's not king and queen. <laughs> to further complicate this chart for you, just because we can, and it's just so exciting and wonderful, Bernice was originally married to Herod of Chalcis over on the far left of your chart. Her uncle. Here we go again. You have nieces marrying uncles. They actually had two children. One of those sons was the one who died in Pompeii many years later. But this Herod of Chalcis died in 46 AD, and she moved and moved with, moved in with Herod Agrippa II. We don't know if it was an incestuous relationship or not. There is no specific historical statement to that effect. It just didn't look good. The fact that they traveled together here in Acts 25 and presented themselves as royalty makes it look like they were husband and wife, but there was never any children from that relationship. In fact, Herod Agrippa, when he did die, there was no successor to him. He was the last of the Herods. There were no more after this. This ended the Herodian dynasty. Bernice and Drusilla didn't like each other. We know that in Acts, talking about some of their tension. Um, <clears throat> so there was some jealousy going on there, probably because Drusilla was very pretty. Bernice was a interesting character. She later had an affair with General Titus. We know General Titus because he's the one who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But maybe she was trying to, you know, hitch her ride to a power broker. The problem was that when it was discovered by Rome and Titus was designated as the next emperor, he ended it. Because it wasn't the right political connection for the emperor of Rome. Notice that Herod Agrippa reigned for 50 years. Herod Agrippa II reigned from 48 AD until 98 AD. 50 years. Now where did he reign? If we had a map, you would see the Sea of Galilee. He reigned up in that area. Kind of in the, you know, the hick town. Not much of influence other than the fact he was still connected to the Herod dynasty. So he had influence. He was still respected by Rome. So there was some connectivity to the Jewish people through this Herod Agrippa. All right. Uh, quick question. Yes. I, I remotely remember something that I thought we did the chief priests. Weren't this group of rulers and the chief priests kind of they were in cahoots uh, because the chief priest basically either bought the position or was assigned the position by one of the either the procurator or in that era. In fact, we had a new, I have my notes here, 
we have a new um, no, I have it. oh it's on page one not page two there was a new proc uh, a new high priest who replaced Ananias in 59 AD and that's this year so when Festus came into town a new high priest was assigned and it may be that Festus named it we don't know we don't know if Ananias died or something but there we do know that there was a new high priest the high priests were not there because of their religious fervor they were there because they agreed with Rome to control the people and they were from the Sadducees the Pharisees controlled the outer area in the synagogues the Sadducees controlled the temple and all of it went around with that so when the temple was destroyed we talked about this before when the temple was destroyed the Sadducees pretty much disappeared because they lost their seat of power pretty much that's very simplistic so when you put it on your test at the end of the semester uh, make sure you add some more uh, ex uh, explanation uh, from your own research. <laughs> Who did you say Drusilla was married to before he, she married Felix? Sorry? Who did you say Drusilla was married to before she married Felix? Um, on your chart, Herod Chalcis on the far left. So Drusilla was married to, I thought Bernice was married to him. Bernice. Yes, Bernice was married. Uh, you asked about Drusilla. Yeah, who was I'm sorry. She was married to some backwater king in Syria. Okay, somebody. No, nobody king. No, no, king. Well, he was a king, but he was a nobody. And Felix saw her and went, "I wanted her," and then sent a magician to convince her that he would bless her if he, she dumped his her husband and went to him and she was 14 at the time. 14. 14. Oh my goodness. Does it really seem like Felix wanted to do a, a, a favor to the Jews as much as he wanted to leave a mess for um, Festus? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it is one of those interesting historical things is that Festus knew better, but it the more the rebellion is going to react against it. And then it blows up in his hometown. And then that news hits Rome. Probably, probably suppressed any other things because they were dealing in the outer regions. But what is in the seat of government, it would be, you know, in the uh, US, it would be like if this blew up in Washington, DC. Suddenly it's in the news. If it happens in Portland, maybe, <laughs> yeah, depending on which channel you watch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, I say all this to put in context what we have coming to us in verse 13. So, you have Festus, the new guy on the block. He's trying to you know, get Palestine back under some sort of control. He's got Paul who's appealed to Caesar, but he doesn't have enough information to write up the charges. And so verse 13, we, now when some days have passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrive at Caesarea and greeted uh, Festus. Obviously this is a state visit. They want to come in and welcome the new boss. Same as the old boss. Uh, they just want to come in here and say hello, it's not that big of a big of a travel, but they probably scheduled it, let him know he was coming, making sure everything was in place. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid out Paul's case before Agrippa II, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out <coughs> their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation. I answered them that it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense. Verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal, ordered the man to be brought, and when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed. 
In other words, he was surprised. Here's this guy that's been under lock and key for two years, and when his accusers made the case, he's sitting there going, what in the world is going on here? Which shows he was a pretty sharp fellow. You know, he was wise. He wasn't just accepting what he was being presented. Verse 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead. But Paul claims to be alive. Huh. Don't you love it? The resurrection comes in again. And Festus is going, okay, what does that have to do with our law? Our law? Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, well, I ordered him to help, be held until I could send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, oh, I'd like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll hear it. Now, I find it interesting that Agrippa had not heard this already. Maybe he was persona non grata to Felix. Maybe he didn't dare go talk to Felix, because he could have, it'd been there two years. But he, Agrippa has not heard Paul's testimony. I find that fascinating. Anyway. And Agrippa would be like the king of the Jewish people. Only the northern part. Okay. He didn't run he was the quote-unquote procurator, if you want to give that term, in the north, north of Samaria, Sea of Galilee, that, you know, basically hick town. Jerusalem and Judea is under the control of Festus. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Don't you love that detail that Luke throws into this? Great pomp. Not just pomp, but great pomp. Uh, I, you can almost imagine the trumpets, the helium balloons. Oh, maybe, maybe they didn't have that. The streamers, the dancing, you know, whatever. And it's this big parade to enter the audience hall or auditorium with the military tribunes, and the prominent men of the city. I mean, this is a big deal. Think of that audience. This is everybody who is a decision maker. These are all the wealthy and important people of Caesarea. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and in here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. It's a gentle way of saying they want him dead. But I found that he's done nothing deserving death. And he himself appealed to the emperor, and I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definitive to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examined him, you may, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not indicate the charge against him. And now we're at the end of chapter 25, and you have to open your Bible to chapter 26 to find the rest of the story. Because I couldn't go back to my office late last night and print out chapter 26, I figured you'd have a Bible. And if you don't have one, <laughs> just open it up to chapter 26 and we are going to hear from Paul so Agrippa says to Paul verse 1 you have permission to speak for yourself and Paul stretched out his hand making his defense I wanted to pause there for a second because late, late in the chapter verse 29 Paul indicates his chain so what kind of chains was Paul saddled with? Were they long chains so he could 
extend his hand like a speaker. Yeah. I think there are more leggings. They might have been leggings. It's very possible. Probably with a long chain so he didn't have to stumble. But he is presented as a prisoner. I don't know whether he was in chains for two years because he was kind of under house arrest. He, and so maybe they didn't, they wanted to make a spectacle that he was an actual prisoner. Isn't he older now? Paul? Yeah. He's not that old. Because that's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> um, my guess is he's in his late 40s, early 50s. So he's not hobbled, other than the fact maybe his thorn in the flesh with either his eyesight or his some other debilitation. But the fact that he stood there and made the orator gesture, which a lot of different uh, writers and commentators pick up on, is that this was part of the, um, um, the training that they would give orators and how they would stand before people. Because remember, a Jewish rabbi, when they taught, they sat down. So he's standing before them and he makes this motion and stretching out his hand and then he begins his defense. And, you know, I could read all of this to you. We know this story. He goes through and talks where he has come from what he's been accused of. He talks about being on the road. Well, he talks about um, persecuting the, the Christians. And I was trying to figure out, maybe you guys can help me with the chronology here. But when Paul was persecuting the Christians, who was the Herod? at the time. Was it Antipas or Agrippa the first? Or maybe it was both. Because both of those were very <coughs> anti-church. Both of them were. And both of them were trying to suppress and uh, maybe had even talked to the Sanhedrin and said we need to do something about this infestation. <clears throat> so Paul was part of the persecution of the early church. And it says here, I did things opposing the name of Jesus Christ. I received the authority from the chief priests. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And on his way to Damascus... At midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. If you were listening to this morning's sermon, what was the description of the transfiguration? That Jesus was what? Brighter than the sun. Yeah. Same description, different passage, different writer, same description. Isn't that fascinating? And he hears a voice, you know, asking, why are you persecuting him? And it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Anybody know what a goad is? A little thing that they use to prod the... Yeah, it's a little sharp stick. You goad someone by poking them. You can goad a friend to do something by sticking your finger in their ribs until they say, okay, 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 okay. But what's the kicking against it? Well, they would use the goads on ox. And the oxen would kick, try to kick at the stick until they finally just gave up and moved. And this was this idea, you know, you're persecuting me, you're kicking against the, the goads and you need to stop. And so this is the, that story. 
Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now, just a, just a second here. If you're just to read this passage out loud and do it slowly, it's not going to take you more than two minutes, three minutes to read it. I think Paul talked a little bit longer than that. This is a synthesis of the presentation. You can imagine he, it is very possible that he strung in the prophecy and the Old Testament and all of the other elements of the gospel into this presentation and then remember who the audience is. This isn't a private audience with Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. The pomp and circumstance of the event meant all the influential people are there and this is Paul presenting the gospel to the secular rulers of the day. That's kind of incredible when you think about the opportunity. And usually when we read this passage, we miss that tiny little detail. Because we think, oh, there was a private audience between you know, the rulers and the kings. And you know, Paul just got up there and talked casually. No, there's an audience. And he presents the full gospel unfiltered. He doesn't back off. Verse 22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great. The room is small and great. Everything from the retainers and those who are holding the robes of Agrippa to Agrippa himself and Festus and everyone else in the area. To the small and the great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would come, would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, in a loud voice, shouted, Paul, you are nuts! You're insane! You are out of your mind! Huh. Now, he'd already heard of Paul's story once. But he's been thinking about it. And remember his description to Agrippa about this guy who's talking about this Jesus who's dead and he claims he's alive? Like, oh, come on. I mean, what kind of idiot do I have to have in charge? Why am I dealing with this nut job? Imagine just trying to Picture this in your mind. Create it in a film that you're watching. And the drama that's going on here. And for Festus to interrupt the man with a loud voice. He interrupts him because it says, As Paul was saying these things, Festus said with a loud voice. He shouts out, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driven you out of your mind. The Greek word in there is mania. You're a maniac. What is wrong with you? And Paul doesn't get defensive. He simply looks at him and says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, 
And to him I speak boldly. For I'm, and he's talking about Agrippa here, by the way, because he wouldn't address Festus as king. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? Whoa. Now, Agrippa's now on the dock. He's being challenged in front of all these people as the quote-unquote king of the northern Jewish province. The Jewish people were beholden to his rule. And they, you know, it was, let's see, he'd only been in charge for 11 years at this point. So he's pretty well established. I just think, isn't that kind of bold? You know, now he's turning the tables on King Agrippa II. And then he says, I know that you believe. And Agrippa's answer is just genius. In a short time, you think you can persuade me to be a Christian? (laughs) So imagine you're having a, let's just say a heart to heart with a friend or an acquaintance or a coworker or family member and you're talking about the gospel and they look at you and go, are you out of your mind? And you look at them and say, but you know what's right. You know what's true. And they respond, you think in this short period of time you can convince me? So does that mean you stop talking? Is this when you give up because they have not suddenly go, you're right. Oh my goodness, I've been waiting all these years. No, that's probably not their reaction. Their reaction is, you're a nutcase. Stop talking about this at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, let's just let's just move on. And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Except for these chains, of course. Question. Yes. Um, in my Bible, it says that another translation of that could be, in a short time, you would persuade me to act like a Christian. Exclamation. What translation is that? ESV. That's funny. I also have the ESV. I have the ESV. This is in the note. Oh, it's in the notes. Oh, yes. That's that's an alternative uh, rendering in the Greek. Yeah. It's interesting because with that statement and with Paul's statement right before that, I know you believe. Right. And then, I mean, could, I mean, could there be there's something that he's, I mean, because you have Paul in other, in other situations coming out and condemning people for obvious their unbelief. Right. And this one, he seems to be trying to pull out of him. Yeah. I know you believe. I know you. You know what's right. Yeah. You know, you are you at least have a sensibility for the Jewish belief. And so he's trying to express and pull that out of him so he can see the logic of the, of the thing. The problem with um, notations, and in, in anytime you're dealing with Bible translations, there are so many manuscripts out there. Tr- typically, the manuscript theory behind like the ESV would be the older the manuscript is, what is what we will have in the main body of the text. But there are other options which they don't want to ignore because sometimes a translation like the King James used the majority. If there's a lot of them, that trumped the older. Do we have any history of Agrippa after this point that we could say something looked like it changed or didn't change? No, no. I'd have to dig in more, but I didn't. This, that issue didn't come up. So, Steve, if the Greek can be translated either way, you think Agrippa's being intentionally ambiguous? Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's possible. If you want to say in public exactly where he's at? Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, if I was a politician, <laughs> I'd learn how to spin my answers in a 
situation like that. And you obviously have smart people who are articulate and are used to be in public settings. And so you, you know, anytime you get two smart people on opposite sides, they start using debate techniques and it becomes this very interesting roundabout and at the very end you're not quite sure who won. It is interesting in the sense that sometimes when you are talking to people you can see like one person's reaction like Festus, right? He just comes up, plus you're mad, but you're watching the other person's reaction and they're not making the same face. Right. They're they're like listening, they're thinking, they're chewing on it. And yeah. It seems like that that's when you see Paul suddenly change because I'm talking to yeah. Right. I'm not talking to you, Festus. I've already talked to you. <laughs> you know, we've already had this conversation. I'm here to talk to Agrippa. Yeah. You had a question? Uh, observation. Yeah, he, he lost because he got up and left. It's true. <laughs> That's another way of debating techniques. That's another debating technique is just to walk out. Well, Steve, what you said, too, about the, the gestures. Paul says, verse 29, all you who hear me this day, Yeah. With, with James hanging again. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can just picture this. You can just picture it. And he's, you know, and he so was, you know, he wasn't. He was from the north, but I wonder if he said all y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so here's an interesting thing: when someone comes and they have an idea or they present something, say you're presenting the gospel. And I mean, I was, I was listening to some YouTube debate a couple weeks back, and it was a atheist talking to a, let's just say a non-atheist, but not necessarily Christian. And the atheist was being so sarcastic about the Christian faith. I mean, it was, oh yeah, all the mumbo jumbo and the idiotic, and it was just this harangue and the other fellow is kind of going, ah, you know, you're, you're not really listening, are you? You already made up your mind, so why are we having this conversation? Pretty much was kind of where it was going. And I came across this little, little point. <clears throat> In the late 1800s, a clergyman by the name of Bishop Wright thought it was impossible for a man to fly. Flight, he said, is reserved for the angels. On December 17, 1903, his oldest son, Wilbur, <laughs> took his seat on the first power-driven plane ever built and was airborne at Kitty Hawk for 12 seconds and 120 feet. There were some who thought the Wright brothers were touched or touched before the fateful day, but now everyone believes they're heroes. But the man's father thought he was doing the impossible and it should just be dismissed. When we present the gospel to anyone, especially the first time, it can sound as absolute foolishness. There is a fact that in 1982, so it's not that long ago. We tend to forget our history. And that really almost isn't history. What, how many years is that? 40 years ago? So 40 years ago, the official Soviet position on religion is that belief in God is a delusion. And if you believe, you must be treated to remove yourself of that belief through drugs for the psychosis or torture to get it out of you 40 years ago an entire country and empire if you want to call it that believed that belief in God is a delusion we forget that and that that, that mentality has snuck its way into our everyday life that if you come at any topic from a Christian standpoint, you know that old stuff, that's irrelevant. It, only old people believe that. The Bible, that old book, 
has no power, has no application. Matthew Mead, in his book Almost Christian, wrote this, If the preaching of Christ is to the world foolishness, then it is no wonder that the disciples of Christ are to the world fools. According to the gospel, a man must die in order to live. He must be empty so he can be full. He must be lost so he can be found. He must have nothing so he can have everything. He must be blind so he can see. He must be condemned so he can be redeemed. One is not a true Christian unless the world thinks they're a fool. Paul's evangelistic fervor would not relent in this situation. He took advantage of the opportunity. He wasn't just trying to defend himself. He didn't care about himself. He cared about presenting the truth to those in the room and the opportunity that he had. He didn't try to protect his own wealth, his own life. He wanted the truth to be presented. The king rose, the governor, Festus, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man's done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, which has caused some to wonder if Paul made a mistake by appealing to Caesar. I would say no. That was God-ordained so that Paul could be in Rome where he was intended to be. And if you remember, there was a vision to Paul when he was originally under arrest where Jesus said, do not be afraid to speak here and in Rome. So he knew here he was supposed to be going. This group of leaders, politicians, elite, uh, in today's world, they're segregated. They're not going to be bringing in a speaker like Paul uh, to preach. Right. So the message of salvation. How fortunate they were able to hear that message. Yep. Uh, and probably the only way that Jesus would work it out would be for him Paul to be prosecuted personally, sent there and have those times, several times, to talk that elite, that group of people. And uh, so maybe some of them maybe did believe more of, of the facts than that what of course no one. We don't know, but we do know that there was a uh, explosion of Christianity. There's just no question. You look back in, in history and the fires that of, of the of the ch of the early church were were burning very bright. It's also interesting to note that many of the uh, preachers, teachers that I was reading and talking about. They kept coming back in these two chapters to the topic of the sovereignty of God. The quote-unquote coincidences of the circumstances of it all pulling together in this multi-year period of Festus, of uh, Ananias, of uh, Felix earlier, the fact that Philip was right there in the neighborhood and, and still preaching and teaching in, during that time. All of this is under God's divine providence. We can never forget that. John Piper was preaching on this and he said, yeah, there was one day I was out, decided to take a jog down, downtown St. Paul and I thought, I'm not going to take my usual route today. I am going to let chance determine my running route. So if the light is red when I come to it, I will turn right. 
if the light is green, I will cross the street, but then I'll turn left. And so he's running around the downtown area completely at random, has no idea where he's going or where he's going to be. And he said, and I turned a corner and I ran into it, and he named three elders of the church coming out of a restaurant where they'd been having breakfast and we had a wonderful time together. He goes, what are the chances? Oh, wait, there was no chance involved in that meeting. And I had to stop and go, whoa, that's pretty incredible. If we think about our lives, how we go, oh, it was my decision. Hmm? Really? You're taking the credit for this? Oh, but you don't take the credit if it goes wrong. You only take credit if it goes right. God is sovereign in all of this, and we see his hand in this passage. And the opportunity that Paul took to present the gospel to some very powerful people, we don't know the result. That's not the point of the story. We know that he was faithful with the opportunity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together for this extensive passage that seemingly just simply tells a simple story and yet we know there's always more to the story when we come to the scripture thank you for giving us this opportunity to explore your word in jesus name amen